new landscape. Many of us have figured out new technologies, navigating our way through social connection, community life, and a life in service of others in new ways. As we navigate faith formation in a digital age, questions of how to serve our neighbor are at the front of our orientation as a people of faith. As we explore these questions, we launch the St. Mark's School of Theology. I'm Hallie Parkins, and St. Mark's School of Theology is a project in faith formation, a way to explore the ways we grow in our faith and our connection with one another, living out our identity as church together in a time of physical separation. This fall, we sat down with Emma Lost, Volunteer Coordinator for Refugee Resettlement at Lutheran Community Services Northwest, to learn more about how the national political conversation, along with a global pandemic of COVID-19, have changed the landscape of refugee resettlement in the United States. Emma provided a snapshot of facts through timelines, statistics, and shifting policies to illustrate the increasing limits on the number of refugees entering the United States. Emma also shared ways in which the Lutheran Community Services has adapted to support refugees as they navigate a new world where digital literacy is becoming increasingly important. Before we listen to Emma's in-depth presentation, I wanted to offer a few questions that she posed to us. Her questions draw us into a larger reflection on our orientation as Christians and how we care for our neighbor, how we care for the stranger, and our ability to grow in empathy. As you reflect on Matthew 25:35, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. What does it mean to you to welcome the stranger? As you live through the COVID-19 pandemic, what tools, resources, and activities have helped you navigate daily life? And as we live through a collective crisis, what is your capacity for empathy? Has it decreased, increased, changed in any way? We will drop into the conversation as Emma shares facts about this particular time in the history of refugee resettlement. Just a couple of other facts. I feel like a lot of times in the news, um, a lot of the laws that are passed around refugee resettlement are done so with the um, framing of protecting national security, wanting to prevent um, potential terrorist attacks and not letting people into the country who we don't know anything about. Um, for refugees, this is not a well-founded fear. Um, refugees are very well vetted and do not pose substantial risk to, the, to national security. Before they ever step foot on a plane, refugees will have undergone security screenings by six government organizations, including the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, the US intelligence community, the Department of Defense, the Department of State, the Department of Health and Human Services. 
refugees are the most well-screened entrants into the United States. Um, and there's not really a more difficult way that you could choose to come to this country. Um, we also hear a lot about wanting to protect um, economic interests and not wanting to, or, or maybe wanting to avoid letting folks into the country who are going to burden our economy and our resources. Um, however, the National Bureau of Economic Research has done studies and they found that the vast majority of refugees pay more in taxes than they will ever receive in welfare benefits. Um, that number has been estimated to be around $21,000 more that they'll pay back in taxes. Um, however, that number varies depending on the source you look at. About 50% of the world's refugees are children. So again, the majority of refugees that we'd be looking at admitting into this country um, are, they, they are children. Children make up about one third of the world's population. However, 50% of refugees are children. Um, and it's also important to note that other Republican presidents have welcomed high numbers of refugees. The shift in national ideology is relatively new. Um, for example, President Reagan in his first term, or in his first year as president in 1981, he admitted 159,252 refugees. Um, so in general, even if opinions have varied about how we're going to admit refugees, how we're going to work the program, there's been agreement on both sides of the political spectrum that refugees do need to be able to be resettled and that the United States has a role to play in this process. Um, and of course, with that shift in ideology, kind of shifting from looking at the United States as a melting pot, as a country of immigrants, to looking at um, to looking at foreign nationals as a threat to American security, there have been a lot of policy changes. Um, this is a very brief timeline of some of the things that have happened in the last four years, um, but I've tried to hit some of the bigger points. So in 2017, shortly after his inauguration, President Trump issued a series of, of executive orders. Um, the first was on border security, which included the order to construct a border wall, to construct more detention facilities, and limited access to asylum seekers by allowing um, agents at the border to make a determination on a case-by-case -case basis whether or not somebody would be able to officially submit their asylum claim. Um, there is another executive order on interior enforcement, which penalized sanctuary cities by preventing them from providing, um, from applying for federal grants. It tripled the number of ICE agents um, and expanded the deportation criteria. Um, and the third might be the most infamous of these. It would be the refugee, the executive order on refugees. Um, this included the Muslim ban. The Muslim, the so-called Muslim ban um, suspended visas to foreign nationals from Iran, Iraq, Sudan, Syria, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen. Um, there are of course many lawsuits that went against this and the Muslim ban went, or the, again, so-called Muslim ban went under a series of revisions. Um, the same executive order also reduced the ceiling, ceiling limit for fiscal year 2017 from 110,000 to 50,000 refugees to be admitted to the country. Um, and it indefinitely banned the resettlement of Syrian refugees. In 2018, the Supreme Court upheld a watered down version of the travel ban um, rather than excluding rather than preventing visas from being issued to nationals from seven countries. Um, the Supreme Court upheld it for five of those original countries, which would be Iran, Syria, Yemen, Libya, and Somalia. They also included a provision um, in the new and approved version 3.0, essentially of the van, ban um, that excluded government officials from Venezuela and North Korea from obtaining visas in the United States. 
Um, in 2019, the president's administration introduced a public charge law, which would prevent somebody who has received welfare benefits from being eligible for citizenship. Um, this does not apply to refugees. However, it does impact immigrants and asylum seekers. Um, it also increased the fee to be able to apply for citizenship or to apply for green cards. So those fees can be incredibly expensive. Um, I know some of my colleagues have paid somewhere between $750 to $1,000 to apply for citizenship. Um, so being able to, to access legal citizenship is difficult and it's very expensive. And most recently in 2020, um, the president reduced the refugee admissions again um, and also introduced new visa restrictions. Um, there are now some restrictions on people traveling from Eritrea, um, Kyrgyzstan, Myanmar, Nigeria, Sudan, and Tanzania. So every year, the President of the United States is responsible for setting the ceiling limit or the presidential determination. This is a number that is like an absolute cap on refugee arrivals for that year. It's by no means a goal, but it's a, a hard line of how many refugees will be admitted into the United States Refugee Admissions um, Program. The graph on the left of the screen shows, the, the blue line shows the annual ceiling limit and the orange line shows the number of admitted refugees. Um, you can see that the numbers have changed depending on what's happening in United States history. Um, but for most of US history, the number of admitted refugees is pretty close to the annual ceiling limit. The big dip would be around 9-11, um, which is when the US understandably suspended um, travel for almost, I mean, even people traveling domestically. Um, this number changes depending on who's president, depending on what's happening in the world and in the country, but the average number of the, the average ceiling limit over the 40 year history of the US resettlement program has been somewhere around 95,000 refugees. Um, so that is the average ceiling limit for the last 40 years. Um, as I mentioned in fiscal year 2017, President Trump um, cut that ceiling limit in half. Um, through an executive order, and then every year he's introduced a lower and lower ceiling, ceiling limit. In fiscal year 2020, which ran October through September, um, the ceiling limit was set at 18,000 refugees, and the United States officially resettled just 11,814 refugees. Um, this low num number is partially due to COVID-19, but it is also impacted by travel restrictions um, and just a changing national climate and the conversation around refugees. For fiscal year 2021, um, the president did announce on late, like close to midnight on September 30th, um, 2020, that the administration has proposed resettling just 15,000 refugees in fiscal year 2021. Again, this would be the lowest admissions ceiling in the history of the US refugee admissions program. Um, and it comes at a time when we have the highest number of displaced people around the world and when many people in camps are more exposed to disease um, and need, need a safer alternative. Um, as of right now, this is just a proposal, so there is still time to fight this and I'll talk a little bit later about how to do that um, later in this presentation. In terms of the election, um, the two candidates could really not be more different in how they plan to approach immigration and refugee resettlement. Um, and in this presentation, I'm not trying to favor one or the other, but simply to give you a um, kind of perspective of what each one would mean for refugee resettlement as a whole. Um, so President Trump would likely propose ongoing reform to refugee asylum and immigration laws. He would most likely continue to decrease the number of refugees um, admitted into the country each year 
to increase the number of travel bans um, and visa restrictions and would most likely continue to um, increase border security and increase or, or change um, deportation requirements to make it easier to deport people. Um, and again, all of this is done under the um, under the ideology of protecting national security. Vice President Biden aims to increase refugee arrivals. His website says that similar to President Trump in the first, well, similar but different <laughs> to President Trump in the first year of his, or in the first month of his um, presidency, he would try to initiate an executive order that would increase the ceiling limit to 125,000 refugees immediately. Um, Biden also proposes to pursue what he calls humane immigration policies, which would mean reducing fees to apply for citizenship and making a pathway to citizenship open for people who might be here who are undocumented. So as of right now, the pathway doesn't really exist. Um, and again, both, candidate, both candidates are taking into consideration um, national security. They both just have very different ways of approaching this. Um, COVID-19 has also drastically impacted refugees, both living in this country and abroad. Um, refugees and immigrants have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 in our country. Um, and of course, in refugee camps, it's, it, it's an even different and greater impact. So a brief timeline kind of of what has happened with um, refugee resettlement since COVID-19. On March 17th, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees temporarily suspended refugee resettlement departures. This was true worldwide, not just for the United States. Um, that initial suspension was supposed to expire on May 14th. On March 20th, the United States introduced new travel restrictions allowing, allowing border patrol agents to block asylum seekers from entering the country on the grounds of slowing the spread of COVID-19. Um, on this point, I will say that the United States does have the right to protect um, its national interest from preventing the spread of disease. However, under international law, asylum seekers also still have the right to claim asylum and to seek asylum in a different country, whether or not there's a pandemic going on. Um, on May 14th, which was the date that the original travel suspension was set to expire, the US Department of State and specifically the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration announced an indefinite extension of the pause on refugee travel with the exception of emergency cases. The UN announced on June 18th um, that refugee travel would resume, although not all countries approved this so that refugees could only travel to countries that had also lifted their suspension on travel. And it was not until July 29th that the US refugee admissions program officially resumed. Um, also on this note, borders with Canada and Mexico will remain closed at least through October 21st, um, with the exception of essential business, um, mostly being government personnel coming in and going out. And we're expecting to see that closure extended beyond the end of this month. And in refugee camps, which are meant to be temporary solutions. However, they're starting to be structured more like small and very overcrowded cities. Um, refugees are starting to spend longer times in these camps. There are incredibly tight quarters um, with tents or structures pretty much wall to wall with each other. Um, and that lends itself to very easy spread of disease. There's also limited access to sanitation supplies. So fresh water can be an issue accessing soap, um, just being able to wash your hands and to keep yourself and your children and family um, clean can be quite challenging in refugee camps. The United Nations and the International Rescue Committee have 
issued several campaigns to try to help educate people and prevent the spread of disease. Um, however, another limitation is testing. So sometimes COVID-19 can spread largely undetected in a camp um, or they don't know the rate at which it is spreading because tests aren't as widely available in these situations. COVID-19 has also impacted our clients and the clients that we're resettling locally. Um, many of our clients work in fields that took a hard hit um, economically. Um, we've had dozens of our clients report job loss and increased income insecurity. We've had an increased number of emergency rental requests each month. I think in June alone, our clients requested $20,000 worth of rental assistance from us. Um, we weren't able to meet all of those requests, but we did what we could and tried to refer them to other agencies as well. There's also an access issue, um, especially for refugees and for immigrants, anybody who doesn't speak language, right, or who doesn't have digital literacy skills. A lot of our clients are coming over to the United States. They've never seen a computer before, or if they have they maybe only used it to search for Google or, you know, do something a little bit more basic. So now all of a sudden trying to access everything online from social services, medical appointments, um, school for their children, it's incredibly challenging. There also aren't a lot of language appropriate resources to navigate technology. So a lot of tech support is available in English and sometimes Spanish, but for clients who speak Dari, Pashto, Farsi, um, Tigrinya, all of these other languages, there's not a lot of support there. And that language barrier also extends into appropriate information about COVID-19. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was not information widely available in a lot of the languages that our clients spoke. Um, so our case managers had to do a lot of the legwork in educating clients about what is COVID-19? How can you prevent this? Um, what do you need to do to keep your family safe? So there's also just a massive access issue going on right now in terms of accessing um, resources, in terms of accessing technology, um, and in information about COVID-19. All of that being said, um, hope remains. We do have a lot of really exciting things happening locally. Um, and I'm really proud to share the ways that I've seen my team members who are case managers and who work directly with clients really step up um, and provide some amazing client supports. Um, one of the best things you can do right now is to contact your representatives. Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, which is our parent organization, um, they've issued a letter to encourage legislators to raise the fiscal year 2021 refugee admissions to that normal of 95,000. So there is still time to fight this. It's as of right now, the ceiling limit has been proposed, but it has not been set. You can also call and write in your own words. Sometimes that is even more powerful than signing on to a pre-written letter. Um, you can also donate. We need thermometers, hand sanitizer, um, sanitization equipment, as well as Lysol and fabric disinfectant for car seats. Um, even though a lot of our clients have been provided with thermometers before traveling to this country, we are finding that there's a gap. Um, some clients receive them and some clients don't. They are required to record their temperatures for two weeks upon arrival, um, so a thermometer comes in pretty, pretty necessary. Um, and we are still providing transportation for our clients to medical appointments, so having Lysol and fabric disinfectant, especially for car seats for children, um, it can be incredibly helpful. We are also looking for ease to clean chairs and couches. Um, COVID-19 has really impacted the number of donations and the kind of donations that we're able to accept. So we cannot accept any kind of like upholstered furniture right now. Um, so we're really looking for things that are easy to wipe down and clean. Um, and of course, emergency fund support, as I mentioned, our clients are submitting an increased number of emergency rental requests. Our emergency fund is actually 100% funded by donors and by grants. Um, so any assistance that you're willing to provide to that goes directly to a, helping a refugee family's rent. 
you can volunteer. As I mentioned, we're trying to start virtual opportunities for clients. We would love to find folks um, who maybe have taught some English before or who are willing to learn how to teach English to help facilitate um, English conversation groups um, and really help refugees find other people to engage with, even if it's online. Um, we are still looking for people to assist clients with accessing and using digital technology. Um, and Circle of Welcome, you've already done it. Um, it still remains an option. We're actually looking at trying to expand how we think about co-sponsorship right now. Um, and during a time of social distancing and a time of, of just a changing national conversation around refugee resettlement, um, community sponsorship is looking like it's going to probably be the way of refugee resettlement moving forward. Um, a lot of agencies are looking at expanding their co-sponsorship programs, um, and there have been some national studies done as well. Um, showing that it, it might end up being the best way forward for refugee resettlement actually as a whole. And spread the word. I am a big proponent of just having normal everyday conversations with people. Um, so talk with someone else about refugee resettlement and the unique challenges this community is facing. Daily conversations are a great way to encourage widespread change. You have some information that you're able to share now. Um, and again, just having that conversation with somebody else, even just casually, um, can sometimes influence somebody to do a little bit of research, get interested in these issues, um, and then share the information that they've learned. I found Emma lifting up hope as she moved through the conversation, offering concrete, tangible, and also digital ways of helping. Over the years, St. Mark's has sponsored several refugee families, providing on-the-ground support and accompaniment to the refugees resettling in the United States, Many of you have been part of this journey of support, walking alongside and embodying the passage in Matthew. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. As we were wrapping up, it struck me that all of this work is challenging. And I asked Emma, knowing that she was a person of faith, how her faith influenced her work. She said that she found power in doing every single thing with love, even if it was the smallest act, like wiping down a table. She went on to describe much more beautifully than I can what a life of faith meant for her in service of others. To me, this is a profound orientation in the world right now, when there are so many things that feel overwhelming. I wonder if this might be the key to empathy right now, to strive in our actions, no matter how small or ordinary, that they are an act of love. I wonder if we are aware of how love motivates us, and then what our capacity could be for welcoming the stranger. In the coming days and weeks, we will learn the outcome of the election, and before, during, and after, I hear an opportunity to act with love from Emma's presentation, to vote, to contact your representatives, to serve by donating items or teaching, or simply by having a conversation. The St. Mark's School of Theology is a project and experiment in adult faith formation during these COVID times. The St. Mark's School of Theology is produced by Cody Schumann. To learn more about the community of St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows, please visit our website at smlutheran.org.